We'll open up to the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. And finding what the Lord might say to us here today. We we need to recap (coughs) the history. I'm not going to re-preach every sermon right now, but I'm going to need to at least recap because there's plenty of us who just weren't here this time last year when we started the book of Exodus, uh, and we will finish up in a few weeks' time. But, but they have been saved from Egypt. This is the story of Exodus. That's why it's called Exodus. Exodus means to leave. The, the Israelites were saved out of Egypt. Here's the bad part of Exodus. They were not saved from sin. Absolutely. The exodus out of Egypt was a picture of and pointing to the salvation from sin. But this generation, though they were physically saved, politically saved, geographically saved out of Egypt, they were not saved from sin. They were saved from the slavery to Egyptians and Pharaoh, but they were not saved from slavery to unrighteousness. They were not saved from ultimate and eternal damnation. What we see in Scripture is that without faith, whether you're in the Old Covenant or in, or, or in Adam's day or in Noah's day, or even, and especially today, the message is clear. Only those who have faith in God, that he, by his own amazing work, can forgive and save me by his grace through somebody he's going to send, was the mindset of the Old Testament. He's going to send something, do something, come in the form of someone. However it works, I trust God alone to save me and forgive me and my works credit me nothing. They believed that in the Old Covenant and were saved. And in the New Testament, so we also must believe by faith in the finished work of Jesus, not thinking towards some future mysterious, what will he do, but rather realizing he has done it in Jesus Christ. Without faith, you cannot be saved. And the tragedy of this this book of Exodus tells us that while they were the first Israelite saved, liberated generation, They were an unsaved generation. There is only uh, probably single digits of exceptions amongst the million people congregation of Israel. Yet, God still bore with them patiently. That's the story of the book of Exodus. Even though he, he was actually going to see almost none of this generation in heaven for eternity, yet, for the sake of his promises to Abraham... And for the sake of his purposes in the world, he would bear with them patiently. He saved them through the Red Sea. He gave them miraculous water and bread from heaven. He led them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke through the wilderness. He shed animal blood and vowed to be their people, uh, their God, and to take them as his people. He thereby entered into covenant with them to fulfill the promises of, a, of, this gen, of this nation going into a land that he made to Abraham. And even, even though many of them lived out of the physical perils, they were still, many of them, not in true saving covenant with God. In fact, even this national covenant that was made with God, as he entered into them through animal blood and promises at the foot of Sinai, it was only a couple of months, not even, before they then shattered that covenant by turning against God and worshipping a false god in the form of a golden calf that they had the audacity to name Yahweh, his name. Like saying, babe, I know she's not my wife, I know you're my wife, but I give her your nickname. Is that better? No, God did what any man would do. 
what any righteous, loving, good, holy married person would do then and say, our marriage covenant is now in tatters. And so by Moses' prophetic symbolism, he smashes the Ten Commandments to communicate this relationship is over. There's no more promises between God and this generation anymore. There's no more covenant. It was shattered by the... In other words, he tore up the contract right in front of them. And then, only because they had a mediator, only because Moses went to God and said, please, though, forgive them. Please, though, be merciful. Please, though, fulfill your promises. We're not worthy. We understand, but please go with us so that the nations see your glory and worship, or at least do not mock you as the God who couldn't even get a generation out of Egypt into Canaan. And so God heard the prayers of his messenger and mediator Moses. He said, okay, I will forgive. I will protect. I will take you. I will take you to the land. I will give you the tabernacle and I will be in your midst Let us now reestablish the covenant. This covenant is, you break it, you die. That's why back when they worshipped the calf, many of them died and were butchered. Therefore, the language of making this new covenant, we're going to see it in the passage today, it's going to say, make new tablets. We're going to make another covenant. But the word make there actually means literally to cut. We're going to cut a covenant. That, That was the language. Because the idea was, If we break this, we die. We are cut off. In other words, we're entering this under the pain of death. So the language was cutting another covenant. Here, God says, I will allow you to come back into the original covenant we made. We will make it again, and then I'll take you to the land of Canaan. So look at chapter 34 of the book of Exodus and verse 10, where we see this spoken to us. And He said that he is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, all of the people currently living in the Canaan land. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, and break their pillars, and cut down their asherim, which are worship poles. For you shall worship no other god, For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you're invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, then make your sons whore after their gods. Verse 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. We'll explain why soon, but we'll skip to verse 27. And Yahweh said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the 
Ten Commandments. May God bless this word in our midst this morning. What we see here, as chapter 34 begins, is an exact repetition or an exact recreation of the covenant already made, then broken back in chapters 21 through 24. So chapter 34 starts in verse 1 with, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. In case you forgot what happened to them, you smashed them because Israel broke them. So the emphasis here is on that phrase, like the first. As we come to Exodus chapter 34, don't think God's making a new covenant. They broke the old one. He's going to edit the conditions. He's going he's gonna to tweak the promises. He's going he's gonna to try and improve on something which failed so badly last time. He's going to do something different, and then Moses will write that on the tablets and go back down. No, he is simply reiterating, reestablishing, redoing, and remaking the covenant exactly as it was prior. And there's a few things we can learn from this. First of all, God's rich forgiveness. Ah, as we see that God was willing, even in the same breath, to remind them that they broke them and, ta- and, and Moses smashed them and yet command them, make some more. And I will write down on them by my own finger yet one more time. I will do it again. In seeing this, we see Jesus, uh, God's magnificent forgiveness. He was willing to get right back to the way things are. Not less than, not conditioned like he kind of threatened a couple of chapters earlier when he said, okay, I'll give you your land, but I won't go with you. No, he's saying, exactly as I promised before, let's reiterate those promises and revive them so that the covenant is back in play. Though their communal sins had been many and deserved death, for which many died, yet still they should have been entirely cut off, but rather God entered again into a fresh, fresh covenantal second chance. Now, if we can just make a point of application here, is this not a rich encouragement to those of us Christians, not those of us as if it's only some of us who have ever experienced sin and backsliding and discouragement, but I mean those of us right now who sit in maybe a a questioning of God's love towards you, maybe a questioning of whether it's worthwhile pursuing again the Lord, like when you think of rich, zealous communion with God and obedience to Him, you have to think of another season. You have to think, back, back then when I, when I was seeing the works of the Lord in my life and when I was praying and when I loved the word and when I would speak his word evangelistically, yes, then, that's another portion for me. It's another, another time or another year or era in my thinking because now I'm, I'm overcome with sin that I've tolerated. I'm, I'm discouraged. I'm, I'm fairly sure God would prefer me to not darken his door again and, and I can just sort of have the promise of eternal life and he'll see me in heaven. He's just not interested in kind of reworking any kind of, any kind of blessing on my life this side of the grave. This chapter tells us nonsense. If God was willing to forgive and enter back into a covenant relationship with an entire generation that he had not even chosen for salvation, that he had not even unified to his son, that he would not even see in heaven, that he did not even have bound up in his intra-Trinitarian covenant and promises from before the foundations of the world. These people had nothing going for them except that they were descendants of Abraham and to them, God was willing to forgive, revive the promises and redeem them at least in this life. Surely then those who have been bought by Jesus' blood, and this is what you can tell yourself, 
Do you preach the gospel to yourself again? Don't excuse sin. Don't, don't sit back in this sort of this sliding, backsliding, drifting down the, the stream version of Christianity because you've convinced yourself that he just doesn't want to deal with me. Friends, he does. Behold the kindness and love of God to, to redeem the lost years, to give back the blessings to those who are in Jesus Christ. Do not stay far off. Do not stay at a distance from your father. Behold his patience. Flee to him in confidence because there is grace to be had at the throne of grace where this God reigns. Do not stay in your bad habits, your shame, your resistance, your disobedience, your unattendance, your lack of service. Flee to the Lord and ask again that he would revive the promises he made to you at your conversion. There's a second thing. We, we see God's forgiveness here just put on display, but we also see the failure of what is going to happen. I mean, he's making the same covenant that just months before he'd already made and failed miserably. Now, has anything, anything significant changed to the Israelites in this last couple of months? Have they, all, have they all been regenerated miraculously? Has the Holy Spirit fallen like at Pentecost and made them all converted? No, nothing's changed. And in fact, that's kind of the failure of chapter 34, is that he's saying, I'll do it just like the first. We say, it's not going to work. It's not going to get them to heaven. It's not going to make them obedient of heart. It's just going to bring them back under some kind of judgment and curse and death. And in case you think I'm being pessimistic about that old covenant generation, it's exactly what the Bible tells us happens. They, they go back, they remake covenant with God in this way. And then this generation, before they even get to get into the promised land of Canaan, have already bankrupted their promises again. And God says, you are all going to be turned into a long trail of corpses strewn across the wilderness for 40 years. I loathe this generation, God says. Your children will rise up and enter the land instead. Now then, is that the ultimate solution? They just needed a fresh generation? No. Because even that generation would forget the works of the Lord, would, would not root out of the land all of the idolaters, and they would be twisted. They would be co corrupted. They would be distracted and idolatrous, and then God would kill them, and then judges would save them. Then, then they would sin again, then God would send death, and then the judges would save them. Then they got a king, which God punished them for, and then he rose up and led them into idolatry. God killed him. Then he got better kings who, who, who had a time of blessing, but his downfall caused the division of the entire nation, continual idolatry, until it reached its zenith in the twofold exile into Assyria and into Babylon and the slaughter of their children before their eyes, before God finally brought them back again to the land and the next thing of, of great importance that would happen is that the Messiah would come. And he re they received him with open arms and with flowers and blessing, didn't they? No, not at all. They butchered him. They killed the one they were waiting for this whole time because they were blind. This is the storyline of the Bible, that a new reiteration of the same old covenant would again be broken. And so it does hint, therefore, towards the future and the new covenant. Chapter 34 is not a new covenant. It's the same covenant happening again. But it does, in, in terms of its, 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 its insufficiency, it makes us hunger and look for a new covenant. 
Something that has better promises, better power, and a better mediator than Moses, if that's even imaginable. Hebrews 8 in our New Testament actually picks up and speaks about this, where where God promised not just to give them land and not just to uh, forgive them through animal blood, but rather to make a better covenant than the one they previously broke. Hebrews 8 verse 6 and following says this, As it stands, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better than the old. For it is enacted on better promises. The good thing about the new covenant is not that it's made with better people. It's not that it's, it's made at a more evolved, progressed generation. No. Sinful, dead-in-guilt people but it is made with better promises. The covenant itself coming from God is better. Here's what verse 7 says. For if that first covenant had been perfect and faultless, there would be no need to look for a second one. But he finds fault with his own first covenant when he says, and then he quotes Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and a new covenant with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I brought them out of Egypt, for they did not continue in that covenant. And so I showed them no concern, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, not onto tablets, not into the temple, into their minds. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not have to teach each one his neighbor, saying, you should really know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, for I will remember their sins no more. The writer of the Hebrews then concludes like this. In speaking of a new covenant to come, he automatically makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In other words, it's a marvelous act of God's grace that we're studying here in Exodus chapter 34. It is. However, it is a work of far superior grace that he makes a newer and a better covenant with mankind. If we sort of pull apart the quotation from Jeremiah 31 that the writer of the Hebrews quotes, we see a couple of elements that make it so much better. First of all, the thing that makes the old one not great is that it's breakable. You sinned and broke the covenant, I'm going to make a better one. What does that imply? But that the new covenant will be unbreakable? If you have toddlers, if you have toddlers, and you have something very, very fragile, what is the one way you ensure that your great-grandmother's crystal decanter doesn't get smashed by your three-year-old? You take it out of their hands. That's how. You don't try and train them. They will fail. It is in their nature to throw, okay, and destroy, then laugh and enjoy themselves while you weep. How do you, how do you make something uh, unbreakable when one of the people involved is incompetent? You take it out of their hands. This is what God has done with the gospel. He took everything required and anything substantial in the gospel, he took it square out of our hands, put it in Jesus finished work, sat him in heaven and said, you can't touch him, change him or or destroy him if you tried. It's done, 
finished, accomplished, out of your hands, believe it and receive it. So, so God, in this new covenant, he doesn't make it conditional in the sense that it depends on us. It's better because it's the law, God says here, is not external. The, the failure of the old covenant, though made by God with a purpose, the, the insufficiency and the weakness of it is that as perfect as the laws were, as glorious as the, Lord, as the laws were, the people of God had to look at them and read them beyond themselves, outside of themselves. And this is what God does in the new covenant, is that he makes us to be born again. He makes us, he doesn't just give us something better, he makes us something better. He doesn't just show us something righteous. He makes something within us, the seed and the germ of righteousness. So that now the laws are not known by us because we read them. They are in our hearts. They become very much in regeneration a part of our desires, affections, and nature. That's better than what this generation had in the wilderness. We also see that it could uh, 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 the, this national group who, were, uh, who, who would spell disaster Many of them did not know the Lord. And so this is what Jeremiah 31 says. Part of what God had to keep on doing is sending prophets to the people of God and saying, you should probably know this God that you belong to. Here's what he's like. Uh, Here's what he teaches. Uh, You should repent and you should have your heart circumcised and be joined to him because right now you're under judgment, though you're one of his people. What Jeremiah says and Hebrews is reiterating is, The awesome thing about the new covenant is that it's not a mixed congregation like that. It's not as if it's not as if there's there's some Christians who are converted and they know Jesus. And there's other Christians who don't know him yet and need to get to know him. The new covenant is its power and its potency and its perseverance is found in this that everybody in the new covenant is born again, washed of sin, given the spirit, and made righteous in Jesus Christ. It is a pure covenant where the old was an impure mixed covenant. I hope we see that. But we can go on. Though all of this covenant is, though the new covenant is much better, still we need to know the Bible, don't we? We still need to know and understand the book of Exodus. So, though I may, in light of Hebrews 8, maybe I've just denigrated the old covenant to you and you say, I don't want to know it. Just tell me more about Jesus. I say, amen, but we got to know it. Well, we're in Exodus chapter 34 this morning. All scripture is beneficial to us and God breathed and wonderful. So go back to Exodus chapter 34 and we'll understand a little bit more about the old covenant. I will not keep you waiting. We will get back to Jesus, our Lord. In a covenant of God, I've said this multiple times in Exodus and it's very important to know, in the covenants that God makes, there are... At least, there's more, but for this morning, there are at least three very important things. There are promises of blessings, there are curses, and there are conditions. This is the case in in, in just about every covenant we find in, in the Old Testament scripture. God makes a covenant, he makes promises for good, he makes curses for bad, and if you ask, well, well, how do you get the blessings and not the curses, that comes to what is the condition? What is the condition of this covenant? How do I enter in and receive blessings instead of breaking it and receiving cursings? And in this situation, we see, if you look at chapter 34, verse 10, verse 10 and 11, he tells us the promises. Verse 12 to 16, he makes the curses, the the consequences of breaking his commandments. 
And in verse 17 to 28, he makes, uh, 17 to 26, he makes the conditions. So in verse 10 to 11, he says, uh, I'm making a new covenant, and this is what I will do. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. All of the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it's an awesome thing that I will do with you. He's saying, I'm going to do the marvels I've promised before in this book. I'm going to take you into the land. I'm going to protect you and drive out these other nations. I will be with you to miraculously save you, preserve you, and give you triumphant victory. But verse 12 and six to 16 goes on, and he starts giving them the warnings and the cautions of the curses that will befall them if they fail to outroot the idolatry of the land. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. Lest it become, here's the warning, a snare in your midst. In other words, you will be trapped up and judged along with them. You shall tear down their altars, break down their pillars, cut down their asherim. Verse 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you're invited, you eat of his sacrifice. We might say, where's the threat to kill them all? In all the gravestones that are standing around them while they're hearing this. That's where they know what happened last time. They whored after another god. And the Egyptians among them who came out of the Exodus with them said, a golden calf is a fun thing to worship. Let's make one. When God says, don't worship other gods, join in covenant with the, with the nations that are already there, or they will be a snare to you, that's a curse, that's a warning, that's a threat that he'll do what he did before again. As I root them out and destroy their sin, you will be destroyed with them. So there, the curses, the warnings, the threats of the Lord held out to the Israelites again. The promises were his protection and his divine success. The cursings were destruction for idolatry, then we ask, what is the condition? In this covenant God made with Israel, which conditions the whole Old Testament. That's why this is important to know, because you're going to be reading your Old Testament as a Christian. You must be reading your Old Testament. And as you're reading it, you need to be looking through the lenses of, how did this relationship with God work? Uh, what are the conditions here? And this is the condition. We see it, in fact, at the beginning of verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Take the, uh, uh, even throughout verse 12. Take care lest you, you shall tear down, verse 13. Verse 15, lest you make, and then when we get to verse 17 to 26, do we find, uh, what do we find there? We find commandments that they must observe or they will be cursed. This is a condition, this, this is a covenant that God's making, which, though entered into by God's own grace, though entered into merely by birth, you did nothing to deserve to be born in Israel instead of the Jebusites that will be killed. You, by God's own sovereign grace, you were born into Israel, free. The, the, the Israelites were plucked up out of Egypt and given the land of Canaan for free by his own grace. Yet, it was a breakable covenant. That if you are one, or your family is one, or your tribe is one, or the whole nation becomes one, that breaks the commandments, he then goes and lists in verse 17 to 26, which are, he's, just so you know, they're just a sampling of everything he's already said word for word in chapter 21 to 23. 
So, so he, there's 10 verses there, and there's 10 sample commandments that just kind of give us a, a sprinkling of the entire law code that we already studied in previous months. So, so he just repeats it. And what he's saying is, I will be your God to you. I will give you these blessings. I will curse you if you disobey these laws. This is, again, a reminder of the betterness of the new covenant. Here they are, these Old, Old Testament Israelites, and they, they, they are held out in front of them as all of the amazing blessings spoken through Abraham, handed down generation after generation. God will take us and make us his people. He will bless all of the nations on earth through us. We will inhabit a land. We will have children that outnumber the stars. Don't you love this? Yes, but you will not partake in them if you are one who sins against God in all of these many different kinds of ways. The curses of God, of God would come upon those who did not obey. And why? Well, because of what he says up in verse 10. In verse 10, he said, basically his purpose statement for this whole covenant, the whole reason he's taken them to Canaan, the whole reason he spoke to Abraham, the whole reason he brought them out of Egypt was this. I will do marvels. Halfway through verse 10. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God's ultimate purpose through saving Israel, giving them laws and making them a nation, was his own unique glory and praise. You can see therefore why if, in the language of 12 through 16, they go into the land carrying all of these blessings from God, then whore after Baal or whore after Asherah, what they're saying is, all glory for all of our blessings be unto Yahweh and Baal. Thank you, Asherah and Baal and Yahweh for the amazing promises that came down to us through Abraham. And God is saying in verse 14, I am a jealous God. Those gods don't exist. They are angels that I threw out of heaven for their rebellion. They are fallen demons and servants of Satan. And you put them on the same bar as me and give them credit for my mighty works, which have never seen, been seen before in all the world? No. If you do that, if you try and share my glory with a fallen demon being worshipped, I will retract from you all of the blessings I gave and you can give those demons the credit for that. That's what God is saying with his jealousy and his uniqueness. Look at the conclusion of the passage in chapter 34 uh, in verse 27 and 28. Uh, first, God just tells Moses what he tells them at the end of every sort of covenant section of the book of Exodus, which is write down everything I told you. And of course, that becomes the book of Exodus. But then also we see in chapter 28 three very important things. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. Fasted completely. His only sustenance being the presence of the Lord and being there in this moment with him. <clears throat> Secondly, we see that God wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, which is the Ten Commandments. The, the, the English sometimes comes out a little strange, but scholars mostly agree that he, at the end of verse 28, 
applies to God because that's already told to us back in chapter 34, verse 1. Bring me the tablets, God said. I will write with my own finger the Ten Commandments. Then Moses wrote on parchment the rest of the law. Therefore, Moses was to write, the, 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 really, the book of Exodus, all of these details down. God then wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone, and then Moses fasted completely in God's presence for 40 days and 40 nights to symbolize, and we go, why? Well, why the fasting? Because this was consecration. This was showing to us he was, this, there was no other things distracting him here. He was consecrating himself to God. God, it was just him and God doing something very important for something very new. There is a new beginning to this covenant, therefore it had to be symbolized. And also we see, for anyone that knows the New Testament, that in these ways Jesus picks up on this theme and kind of reflects Moses in a purer light. Jesus, after his baptism, was taken by the Spirit to fast completely for 40 days and 40 nights. He was not there under the blessing of God, he was there under the temptation and the trial of the devil. And yet, as the better Israel, as the better and the more perfect Israel and Judah, he succeeded and he overcame the temptation and worshipped no other God but remained fast as a true human to his worship to Yahweh. And then, of course, God blessed him. In, in this, Jesus was beginning something very new. He was consecrated to God out in the wilderness. And he also, like Moses was establishing a new beginning for the people of God. This new beginning is what we have been calling the new covenant. A new set of promises poured out from God without curses on a more simple condition. These three things about the covenant, promises, curses, and the condition, what are these in the New Testament, in the new covenant, in the gospel? What are the promises? Nothing short of pure and free and sure forgiveness of all of your sins for free. The Old Covenant, you would have forgiveness of sins, atonement of sins for a time, and really it was only ceremonial. You had forgiveness of sins, not eternally. You will still go to hell for this if you do not have faith in the Messiah to come, but you can enter the tabernacle at least. You can undergo some kind of Israelite national actions, clear of that sin for the time. But in the New Testament, you have freedom of sin eternally. In the Old Testament, they were being promised land, a temple, protection, and perpetual nationhood. In the New Testament, we are promised a heavenly land. We are the temple of God. We have the protection from every spiritual enemy. And we have the absolute permanence of the church as God's nation in the world. For Christ has said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. This is the promise in the New Covenant. What are the curses? What are the curses of the new covenant? Hear me loud and clear. There is no such thing as a curse in the new covenant. There are curses for those who reject the new covenant. There are those who pretend to be Christians, blaspheme the new covenant, but really have no submission to Christ. There are those passages in the New Testament. But hear loud and clear. There is therefore now no condemnation, no curses for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that if you've had faith and then backslidden or then sinned or maybe sinned mightily, maybe committed idolatry, maybe adultery, maybe something horrific, and you ask yourself, is there some kind of limit to the sin? Like this is one of the big ten or maybe one of the big three or you think this is the big one. 
Surely now I come under God's curses because having been unified to Christ, I've now undeserved him. Friend, you never deserved him. God has taken your permanence in the new covenant out of your hands. He's put it in Jesus. You are unified by faith and even the faith that you have, God himself is supplying. There is no curses in the new covenant for those in Christ Jesus. And what is the condition? The promises are eternal life. The curses are non-existent. What is the condition to enter into this amazing blessing in Jesus Christ? It is merely this, to understand that while you're a sinner, Jesus, God's own son, came into this world and lived like one of us, but free of sin. He went to the cross where he died, not just as a political agitator. No, but he died as a lamb of God, being crushed under God's wrath being punished for our sin, your sin. And he died truly and then was raised gloriously three days later. And then he went up into heaven and here's his, here's his message. If you believe that and trust that as the grounds for being able to enter heaven, if you stop trusting yourself or trying to be righteous, if you don't neglect and reject and oppose this message, but receive it into your heart, as Jesus, the only one that can save you. Truly God, your Savior, if you do that, you fulfill the one condition, which is to be a sinner with faith and trust in Jesus. That's the condition. Not obedience. Not if you observe all of these things, then maybe you'll get in. But faith alone. And if you think at this point, that sounds far too majestical. Just far too far too pie in the sky. This is too good to be true. That's impossible. And here again, the words of God, I will do marvels such as have not been seen, nor been created in all the earth or in any nation. This is his greatest miracle, turning a sinner into a forgiven saint. Let's pray. Father God, so much glory so much power, so many miracles, and so much grace was poured out onto Israel through that old covenant. And we read it, and it is true. They were a unique nation, for you had done to no other nation what you did to them. And yet, Paul tells us that the, the glory of Christ's work so far outshines that of the old covenant that it, it, it passes away into, into non-illuminescence. It's, it's not even registering on our radar the glory of the old covenant in light of the new covenant. Well, God, there's, there's none of us who, who in our right mind would prefer the old covenant or who want to sneak back into the old covenant or want to slide back in, into a day that seems more marvelous. No, God, we, meeting here today under your word, we know that this is the glorious, marvelous, wonderful covenant not because of external displays, not because of the, 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 the amazingness of the people that are here, but because of the glory of your grace through Jesus on the cross to unworthy sinners. I pray, Lord God, that you would focus all of our minds off everything that is distracting and focus us squarely on the glory of Jesus who leads us out of our sin and slavery and gives us eternal life in heaven and glory to come to the glory of the Father. We ask, Lord God, that today you would, you would give that sight, that, that faith to, to understand Jesus and receive him into their heart, 
that you would give that to people for the first time today. There'd be no one walking out of here knowing that they're unsaved but not caring enough for their own self and their own soul to do anything about it. Lord God, and may we be a church where this message is constantly proclaimed and you worshipped in light of it. We pray all of this in the name of our Messiah, Lord, King and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And everybody said... This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.